Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. And thanks for joining us here. We are proud to be sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. You should subscribe to a weekly newsletter on politics and policy. Go to s4grp.com, scroll down, you will find the link to the newsletter, and please subscribe. It's a great newsletter. So, here we are. We are in the post, the post first primary, where the Republican nomination had essentially been locked up, although not locked up numerically, but locked up because there's only one candidate on the ballot. I'm sorry, not one candidate on the ballot, only one candidate running. So how did Donald Trump do in his first two primaries, West Virginia and Nebraska? So some would say, oh, he cleaned up, he did fantastically. And some would say, well, particularly in West Virginia, he really did romp with 77% of the vote. And in Nebraska, which Ted Cruz, for some reason, still thought he was going to win, there was this odd thing that Ted Cruz said, well, if I win Nebraska, I'll get back into the race. Huh? I mean, I'm one of those people who thinks there was no reason for Ted Cruz to drop out after Indiana. He'd already thrown the Hail Mary pass. So what? So stay in. Stay into the end if you really want to have an influence. What did you drop out for? Is it an emotional decision? It was a real decision? Well, you know, Ted had always been so disciplined with everything. Obviously, there was no chance he was going to win at that point. Indiana was his last stand. But, you know, why not stay in? If you want to prove a point, stay in the race. But he didn't. He gets out. And then he says, well, if I win Nebraska, I'll stay in. But let's look at it for a second. I mean, when you think about it, Nebraska, okay, it's not certainly not tailor-made for Donald Trump, but he was the only one running. Anybody who came out to the polls, anybody on the Republicans who came out would have to be thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm coming out to vote. I'm Republican to Republican primary. And, you know, only Donald Trump is running. So what am I doing? I'm either going to register my support for the presumptive nominee or I'm going to vote for somebody else. And 80,000 of them actually voted for somebody else. In fact, even in West Virginia, where Trump had big numbers, 40,000 Republicans voted for somebody else or 40,000 people voted in the Republican primary for somebody else. But 80,000 in Nebraska out of 200,000 went ahead and voted for somebody else. 40% of the Republicans voted for somebody else, which is if you're Republican leadership and you're sitting there and you're even Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump has got to start thinking about the general election and thinking, I need to start quickly, quickly and very, very quickly consolidating Republican support because it would seem to me from where I'm sitting the Republican support that he has is weak. He has some definite weakness amongst conservatives. Yes, you could say everybody's falling into line, but it's not really the case. So, of course, he's headed to Washington. Famously, it's been going on all week. It's been a little bit of a feud. I shouldn't say a feud, a little bit of a rift. And Donald Trump is coming to Washington, going to D.C. 9 a.m. That means it's happening right now. 9 a.m., Donald Trump is going to be sitting with Speaker Paul Ryan, and I believe together also with GOP Chairman Ryan Priebus. Ryan and Priebus are both of Wisconsin, and they are going to sit down and 
initially, I think the whole world was kind of blindsided when Speaker Ryan, the titular head of the Republican Party, because he is an elected official and Donald Trump is, in fact, not yet an election official, uh, if he should become one. And Speaker Ryan declined to endorse him on national TV last Thursday. So in between, there have been quite a quite a flurry of activity around around this, around other figures within the GOP, just to get a scorecard. It is quite unprecedented that, although you could say some of them are of the same last name, but quite unprecedented, two of the last Republican, sorry, the two last living Republican presidents, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, both declined to endorse Donald Trump. They are not attending the convention. They will not campaign for him. They will not be involved in the election at all. The elder statesman of the Republican Party, Dick Cheney, says he will go with Donald Trump. Jeb Bush says he will not be with Donald Trump. Mitt Romney will not be with Donald Trump. You know, it's if you're thinking about it, you're scratching your head and you say, okay, I don't really need these people. Well, you know, that only goes so far. I mean, you can't continue. I mean, now, finally, Donald Trump actually needs something. Why is he coming to Washington? Well, he actually probably does need the establishment to come to his side to rally around him. And why? Money. And you would think, oh, Donald Trump, he doesn't need any money. Guy's billionaire, gazillionaire, self-funding the campaign. Well, guess what? He's not going to self-fund the campaign. He's certainly not going to self-fund the $1.5 billion that he needs. That is a mega check. And, you know, according to him, he certainly has the money. But according to Forbes, he doesn't have the, you know, he might, that's not the kind of liquidity he probably has. According to Bloomberg News, I think, which pegs his value somewhere in the 2 to $3 billion range, a billion and a half is way too much for a guy to part with. But either way, it's not really the issue. I mean, does Trump have the money? Does he not have the money? He's you know, certainly now trying to finesse his way around the tax return issue once again. He's probably thinking, why? Why does this keep happening? Why does this keep kind of popping up this little tax return? First he says, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. It's under audit. Then... Everybody says, well, you, you, you really have to do it. It's 40 years of precedent. The last, or since 1976, every president has released their tax returns. And Trump last night said that he, well, he's going to. He's going to. But, of course, there's nothing to see. There's nothing important. You don't learn anything from a tax return. Trust me, I'm a financial expert. Can't learn anything from a tax return. So that's his... What's he sticking to? That's his story, and he's sticking to it for now. But I have a feeling, just like it plagued Mitt Romney over and over and over in the 2012 election, this will continue to plague Donald Trump. He, Although, I have to say, you got to give the guy credit, over and over he manages to avoid questions that he doesn't want to answer, over and over, quite impressively. So, Trump going to... D.C., going to the seat of the establishment, going to there, and he's thinking, these guys have to help me raise money. They have to help, and I will help the down-ballot people also raise money. I'm going to raise money for senators, raise money for the party, I'm going to raise money for the House. But what is Paul Ryan really worried about? I mean, you have, in any meeting, who's holding the cards and who isn't. Some would say 
that Donald Trump holds all the cards, right? He's getting millions of votes. He's energizing voters. He's got the grassroots. And he could push Paul Ryan aside. And Paul Ryan said, hey, you know what? I chair the convention. You asked me not to chair the convention. I'm not going to chair the convention. Paul Ryan is like kind of sitting there in principle and saying, I'm here to help my majority, to make sure that the House Republicans remain in the majority. And if I want, if my, some of my members need to put some distance between somebody with record unpopularity, which Donald Trump has, and no indication whatsoever that he is going to moderate his message, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to help my members over Donald Trump. And of course, Paul Ryan, being somebody who is in office with tremendous power over the agenda of the country, has the ability to raise significant money. And it would seem that Donald Trump has a need for Paul Ryan right now more than Ryan. Now, yes, everybody's going to say, well, doesn't don't the members support Trump? Don't the members think you need unity? Don't the members need you know, there's interesting amongst the, the House members as we've seen. You know, some are concerned. Some obviously feel that you have to support the nominee. There is Republican unity and Paul Ryan is putting it at, at stake. But some of the most conservative members, particularly those of the House Freedom Caucus, who have been kind of the rebels out there, they're saying, Well, we don't know if Trump's really conservative. We're, we're nervous about all the issues that we care about, whether Trump is really conservative. And certainly he doesn't agree with the speaker on a whole host of issues like trade and outreach. To Certainly the Muslim ban is a big deal. Uh, the speaker has spoken out about it. And uh, the economy entitlement reform, Trump doesn't believe in entitlement reform. But the other thing is just the moderating of the tone that several members have talking about it, that they don't seem to be able to handle, if it gets for their re-election. Remember, every House member is up for re-election. Forget about the, the Senate where you have, you're hanging on by a slim majority, or it seemed like a slim majority. The math is difficult for the Republicans right now as it is you have some very vulnerable senators mark kirk in illinois kelly yacht new hampshire and they're sitting there and thinking about sorry pat Toomey in uh pennsylvania and these are have been blue states uh, ron johnson wisconsin so you're thinking, okay, these are should, all are very inco- are incumbents. They're conservative, but they're also moderates. Can they survive an onslaught where, you, with a huge minority and gender gap for the Republican Party, and where that becomes worse? Even John McCain, who has said that he will support the nominee, John McCain has said that he is nervous about being reelected in Arizona. Why? Because the significant numbers of Latinos who are registered to vote and continue to register to vote or newly registered to vote in big numbers in Arizona. So John McCain, he himself, though he is supporting Trump, he is actually alone amongst recent nominees. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob Dole, 1996, Bob Dole supporting Trump. And... John McCain, very nervous about it. Lindsey Graham, of course, John McCain's a sidekick. I don't know who's the sidekick and who's the principal, but, you know, John McCain, I think, being older. Lindsey Graham, the sidekick, is not supporting Trump, and, well, I think that's obvious. We've seen that for a while. But, you know, 
let's just think about where things stand. I mean, wh- what is it about the the principle of not to support Trump, not to support Trump? What is the question? And if you want to look at the reaction of a establishment, about as establishment a Republican as one could get. We'll look at the letter, an open letter, that was penned by Max Stepanovich. Who is Max Stepanovich? Well, if you watch, if you read the book Recount, or Too Close to Call, that is, and then you go watch the movie, I think it was made into an HBO movie, Recount. Now, if you don't, if you enjoy politics and you're listening to the show, hopefully that means you actually enjoy politics. You know, well, maybe just keep the radio on all day, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you enjoy politics, you got to read that book. That's about the Bush Gore 2000 race and the recount for it. And Max Stefanovich is a Tallahassee lobbyist, as in Tallahassee, Florida. He is the guy, the guy who was put in place to make sure that the Florida Secretary of State counted the votes in the right way, and I'm being a little bit spinning on this as far as I counted the votes in the right way to assure the victory of George W. Bush in 2000. Yes, I'm being conspiratorial about it. I think George Bush would have won anyway, hanging chads, etc., that kind of thing. But the one thing I learned from that movie, and you learn in politics and you learn in combat, is that you play to win. You play to win. You don't play for second place. You know, we talked about that many times, you know, with regard to Marco Rubio and others. You play to win in politics. You always play to win. You always play to stay ahead. You always play the game, stay ahead. So Stefanovich is about as much of a hardcore Republican insider as they get. And he writes a letter back, uh, I, sorry, last week and talks about the test for Republicans. And I got to read some of it on on the air here because I think it's really uh, it's really impressive that somebody would write this and the feeling because you're certainly exposing yourself to a tremendous amount of backlash. But we talk, he talks about a test that we don't expect to be tested, and te- testing only happens on television. Well, let's just get into the meat of it. Make no mistake, we Republicans stand on the threshold of a fundamental moral test in the 2016 presidential election, a challenge so serious as to be existential. As Ronald Reagan said in 1964, it is a time for choosing, and the choice, while clear, is one Reagan could never have imagined. Hillary Clinton on one hand, Donald Trump on the other, Scylla and Charybdis, the devil and the deep blue sea, or so it would appear. Well, this is some strong language. But appearances deceive he continues, Hillary Clinton is in the minds of many conservatives an ethically challenged liberal, hatred of whom has become a reflexive part of Republican liturgy. But as flawed as she might be, she is different only in degree from past presidential candidates. She is business as usual, concealed by a little progressive smoke here and a few populist mirrors there. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is different in kind and dangerously so. On a personal level, Trump is a bore, a bully, a carnival barker, and an embarrassment. Politically, by intent or instinct, he is a neo-fascist, nativist, ultra-nationalist, a racist, a misogynist, an anti-intellectual, a demagogue, and a palingenetic, authoritarian, 
to whom clings the odor of the political violence he encourages. He appeals to our fears, preys on our anxieties, and exploits our ignorance. A worse candidate to sit in the Oval Office over the next four years cannot be imagined. And he is our responsibility. And this is the money line, because at least he takes, as talked about last couple of shows, the Republican Party, Ted Cruz, whoever it is, is responsible for this movement, the catering to the Tea Party, to some of the worst instincts of creating this broad coalition, some of the worst instincts of certain voters, particularly, particularly, I think, on the racial front. But let's just say, he, Stepanovich says, and he is our responsibility. We spawned Donald Trump. Now we must stop him. We must deny him the presidency by not voting in the presidential election at all or voting for Hillary Clinton if conscience permits. A drop of a few percentage points in the Republican vote for Trump will be enough, which is why the pressure to conform to toe the party line will be enormous. We cannot depend on our elected leaders to lead us. They, for the most part, will fold like cheap lawn chairs, cowed by fear and fueled by ambition. All right, enough of that. I mean, that's a strong letter. And I think that it is certainly emblematic of the dilemma that many, many people deal with with regard to the choice between Donald Trump. Many Republicans are trying to deal with the whole phenomenon of Trump, the fact that they, you know, on many, many issues, he is so different from what most Republicans or many Republicans, certainly many conservatives believe. I mean, this week, Donald Trump says, well, it's a Republican party. It's not a conservative party. He's a, I think he got confused because yes, New York has a conservative party, but most states don't have a conservative party. So he, he kind of said, well, you know, it's, you don't have to be conservative to be a Republican. Yeah, but it's just not, it doesn't seem to make any sense as far as that. I mean, yes, there is, of course, the conservative party in England. I don't know if that's what he was talking about. But, you know, there are very few conservative parties out there. I, you know, I know that he's thinking, okay, New York and New York-centric, etc. But we'll leave that aside. So, again, back to Sarah P- uh, Sorry, back to Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. Who holds the cards between the two? Well, of course, Sarah Palin decides to stick her nose into this. And she declared that Paul Ryan is going to be cantered. So, of course, we all remember the political earthquake that under that befell Eric Cantor, losing to a no-name candidate, David Bratt, woefully underfunded, met much the same of the anger, the pitchfork-type anger that has gone into this primary. And, of course, Sarah Palin said that Paul Ryan's days are numbered. But, you know, once again, Sarah Palin fails to look at the facts, and, you know, I don't want to equate Trump with Sarah Palin. I think Trump is a talented candidate. Yes, it's have, you'll find a lot of things out there. Sarah Palin has become a caricature of herself. I mean, so beyond the pale. But, of course, she says, well, we're, I'm going to go campaign for against Paul Ryan, and he's going to be unseated. I think she missed the fact that Donald Trump lost Wisconsin pretty badly. Additionally, additionally... He lost Ryan's congressional district pretty badly. In fact, I don't know that if you look at polling, you know, Ryan is pretty popular. I think 80% of Republicans in his district like him. Of course, most 
Republicans in his congressional district don't like Donald Trump. And when Sarah Palin gave a speech to the Wisconsin GOP in Milwaukee, I remember there was just nobody clapping. So let's leave that aside for a second. We're back to the fundraising thing. I mean, Trump has been able to win on the cheap, and he's done that quite, quite effectively. In fact, impressively so. You know, they say he, the TV, the media, the exposure that he has earned, and I said he's driving the agenda every day. He's sucking up the airwaves. Doesn't matter. He has. He says something. He figures out what to say in order to drive the airwaves. It's about two billion dollars. Wonder it's going to be difficult for him to have that within the span of the general election to outdo Hillary in that way. And now that we mentioned Hillary, we got to get to Hillary. Okay, Hill Sanders wins West Virginia, and everybody said, "Well, Hillary's flawed candidate. She's got terrible deficits with men. She's got terrible deficits with young people." There's two ways to look at this. One, you look at it and you say, "Okay, Hillary is woefully flawed, and she, if it wasn't Donald Trump she's running against, she would be so beatable." And I agree with that. I mean, I think truthfully, if it wasn't Donald Trump she was running against, she would be very beatable, but she is. But the other thing is that, you know, as I said before, you play to win. And she's playing to win. She is doing what she needs to do in order to win. And yes, these states, yeah, they matter. But it's very artificial. What matters is the delegates. We could talk about it over and over and say, well, you got to win the state. you got to win the state. Well, you don't have to win the state. You have to win the delegates. That's what it's like. And she is winning the delegates in order to get the nomination. You put together a plan. To win. The same way if you're running in the general, you put together a plan to win 270 votes. That's the key. 270 electoral votes. So the problem for Hillary is just that as long as Sanders stays in the race, as long as Sanders winning, he stays in the race. And as long as he stays in the race, she can't focus on Trump. And as long as she, he stays in the race. There's still this kind of hope on the part of his followers that she will not be the nominee, and that you know, and she looks more and more establishment every day. And of course, the establishment is not popular in this election. And as I said, the establishment is not popular. And Hillary Clinton needs to know that. The Democrats need to know that. They should not be gleeful in thinking that this is going to be a cakewalk against somebody with historically high unpopularity such as Donald Trump that he's going to continue to say incendiary things over day, day after day I will say there just doesn't seem to be any reason for him to continue some of this rhetoric that he continues to use but he feels for some reason he told the New York Times that he has a mandate from the voters to continue this style of campaigning you know it's it also dredges up all kinds of things. You know, he gets into a Twitter spat with Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, and all he keeps saying to her over and over is, you are a fake Native American. And because you know, I think she claims she was 116th Native American in order to get a job, which, okay, look, <laughs> if you can claim it, more power to you. Go ahead. Nothing wrong in my book with that. But fake and, you know, then he starts calling her uh, goofy. And 
you know, he actually, in 1993, Donald Trump was fighting the expansion of casino gaming into Connecticut, the Manchitaket Pequot Indians, the famous Foxwoods Casino. It almost fades from memory because people don't remember Foxwoods anymore because there's so many other casinos out there. But Foxwoods was a big deal. It was the first play major casino outside of Atlantic City. Of course, Trump owned three casinos in Atlantic City and no interest in Foxwoods, no interest in anybody going to gamble anyplace else other than Atlantic City. And he actually said at a congressional hearing, which is like shocking in Washington, the gentility of the Longworth House office building, when he said, well, these, these Pequots, these Indians, they don't look like Indians at all. They're fake Indians. So it was just a shocking thing. You know, he's doing the same thing to Elizabeth Warren. You're a fake Indian. It's a little bit, uh, well, let's just say it, it puts me off a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me, but never underestimate the capacity. I think one thing we have learned from this is that the Republican Party is willing, Republican primary voters, I should say, not the party, let's separate. The Republican primary voters are willing, ready, willing, and able to nominate candidates for higher office who are the least likely to win. And we had that, we've had that in past election cycles. We had a whole crop of them. You know, Sharon Engel in Nevada, okay, probably less likely to win to beat Harry Reid. Todd Aiken in Missouri. Uh, uh, Murdoch in Indiana, a, a shoo-in. Richard Luger would have been a shoo-in for that seat. Instead, Murdoch came in there and defeated him in the primary and did not win. Okay, Denise O'Donnell. Remember her, the witch? In Delaware, beats a sure, sure winner in Mike Castle. So Republican voters are willing to go ahead and pick a candidate, even if they think they can't win. Now, with Donald Trump, they think that they can win. That seems to be the polling that many Republican voters, primary voters, feel that Donald Trump is the best person to win. But we'll have to see because it doesn't seem right now that he is doing the things necessary in order to give himself a chance to win the general election. He's doubling down on a whole bunch of positions. He's picking fights with many prominent Republicans. And at the same time, he is not putting together the infrastructure, the national type infrastructure. It's a huge business campaigns. And you need to be able to put together a 50-state operation, it's particularly if Trump feels that he's going to move the needle in traditionally blue states, he needs to put together that type of operation. Doubling down, he says uh, this yesterday that the Muslim ban would not apply to newly elected mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Shouldn't we be encouraging moderate Muslims who are not fundamentalists, who are feeling who go out and campaign in the Jewish community even, who attend Holocaust memorial uh, commemorations as some of their first acts. That's why, in my mind, the Muslim ban, the religious test, the idea that you would ban a whole religion, is so un-American, it's so offensive, it's so it goes against everything we stand for. And, you know, so... Trump said he'll make an exception for Khan, for the mayor of London. But Khan said, basically turned around and said that Trump is ignorant. Um, well, well, let's get back to the one vignette as we close off this episode. 
Let's just talk about the dilemma right now of Chris Christie. The highs and the lows. I know he's a frequent target, a favorite target. In fact, I look, I think Chris Christie, also a very skilled politician. But sometimes the skilled politicians, you have to also point out some of the faults. Chris Christie named the transition chairman, the chairman of the transition committee. Now, usually candidates do not have transition committees. Candidates elect or president-elect will have a transition. But Donald Trump is starting early. He wants to do his homework. He wants to be prepared. And I get that. So he's already transitioning towards the presidency. He picked Chris Christie at the same time. Now, of course, Chris Christie is also going to have to work with Jared Kushner. Chris Christie put Jared Kushner's dad in jail. Um, strange, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows, but we know that. But leave that aside. Chris Christie, this week, or yesterday, or two days ago, the judge said, a federal judge said, that they are going to release the names of the unindicted co-conspirators in the Bridgegate case. And I will say, you know, even Donald Trump said it, there's no way that Chris Christie didn't know about Bridgegate. I don't know if that was the exact quote, but I think that was pretty close to it. Donald Trump believes that Chris Christie knew, and he is essentially now owning the Bridgegate thing because he, Chris Christie will now have to face a whole bunch of names of prominent New Jersey electeds or appointed officials who potentially participated or knew and they just weren't indicted, including possibly, possibly, he might be on that list as well. So we'll stay tuned for politics every week as great entertainment here on Spin Class, sponsored by the S4 Group. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nahum Siegel Network.